Open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 3. The song we just sang is perfectly appropriate for the subject at hand, and that is that we do not want to be belly worshipers. We want to turn as far away from that course of Christian conduct as we can. So appropriate in light of the passage that we're turning to, Philippians chapter 3, which we can only cover very briefly as I want to add some other scriptures to it in the time we have left. Philippians 3, verses 8 through 21 are one of the best descriptions in the Bible of a mature Christian's zeal of how they walk to please the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 18 and 19, of course, in parentheses, are the matter that I want the most out of the passage, but I want to tell you that if you ever want a measuring device to look at your life, it's Philippians 3, 8 through 21. And let me briefly point out some of the things that it says. The most important contextual thing we need to remember as we read these verses is that these are words by Paul. Now you would think that Paul, of any man that's ever lived, had achieved a level of devotion and service to the Lord Jesus Christ that he could take it easy. But that is not how he writes at all. First of all, he said in verse 8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. The words simply mean, There is not a doubt in my mind, nor do I have any regret that everything else I've ever done in my life, I can easily give it away, give it up, for the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. The knowledge of Jesus Christ, who He is, His character, His coming, the facts, His affection, His devotion, His love to die for us on the cross, His obedience to His Father's will, all of the things about the Lord Jesus Christ, and a few specifics are about to be mentioned, the Apostle considered excellent knowledge, superior knowledge to the things you're learning in school by far, superior knowledge to the things that you go to seek to learn to be able to help yourself, whether it's in a hobby or at your home, Paul said, there's not a doubt about it in my mind. Everything else is inferior. In fact, everything else is dung that I might win Christ, as the last part of the 8th verse says. He wants to be found in him in verse 9, and that is a theological statement there about the fact that he trusted Jesus Christ for righteousness and not the law of Moses. But he comes to verse 10, And here's his desire of winning Christ, that I may know him. I want to please Christ. I want to be closer to him. I want to win his affection and his approval of my life. Because Paul said, I I want to know him. I count all things but lost for the excellency of this, that I may know him. He wanted a closer, more personal, more intimate, experimental knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we use the word experimental, we mean that it is a knowledge based on your experience of relating to Christ in your daily walk with God rather than just an intellectual head knowledge of facts. Paul already knew all that and there wasn't any more for Paul to know. But Paul still wasn't satisfied that he was as intimate and close to the Lord Jesus Christ as he wanted to be, which is an amazing statement coming from such a man. That I may know him and the power of His resurrection. I want to know the power that raised His dead body from death to life in my life to raise me above all the temptations in my flesh and give me a resurrected life. I want to know the fellowship of His sufferings. I want to be able to suffer like He did, so cheerfully to the will of God. I want to be made conformable unto His death, that I am willing to die and leave this world and not have any regrets to fulfill my purpose in serving the Lord. And he describes that as means by which he could prove that he was going to be raised from the dead in the 11th verse. Now he says in verses 12 and 13 and 14 that, Brethren, I haven't attained. I haven't achieved what I want to yet. You may think of me, and and we do, and he doesn't say this, but we look at him and say he had achieved. He had apprehended a great deal, but he didn't think so. He said, I follow after in the middle of verse 12, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. 
Jesus has saved me for the glory of God to give my life in service to Him. And I haven't fully done it yet. I want to do more. He is then going to compare himself to a race. And he does this about five times in the New Testament where he compares the Christian life to a physical running race. And when you're running a race, if it's if you're running a mile, and if you're going to a high school that has the old-fashioned quarter-mile track instead of the 400-meter track, it's four laps around that high school football field to make a mile. It does not matter as you hear the bell go off when you cross the finish line of the third lap. When that bell goes off, there is no value in you thinking about the three laps you've just run. The only thing that matters now is the fourth lap. And the Apostle Paul had run his three laps, and he was hearing the bell. And notice how he describes himself. I forget, the middle of verse 13, I forget those things which are behind. That's laps one, two, and three. That's everything else I've done, every church I've founded, every place I've preached, every miracle that God has worked by me. And reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. At that point in a race, you have already spent a large portion of your energy reserves. But as you hear that bell, and you now know that it is a one-lap race, it doesn't matter, it's a one-lap race now, and he reaches forth for that prize and he presses toward that mark. And so men, when they hear that sound, they up the pace. Even though the energy has been depleted, and no matter what position you're in, the position of the finish is very different from the position at the end of the third lap ordinarily. Because now it's up to men to run that last lap. And forget the analogy and the metaphor now. The Apostle Paul was not content with his first three. He was now wanting to finish his life out for the Lord. And so he's giving mature Christians... A description of wanting to be better. Thank you, sister, for talking to me at break time. But don't be too hard on yourself. Let's just make sure we run the race that's left. We can't go back and change the first three laps, but we can run faster, can't we? And Lord, help us to run faster. I press. Can you see a runner straining? Straining, leaning forward, chest out, wanting to hit the tape first and win this race. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And what is that? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Coming from the mouth of God and the Lord Jesus Christ puts in the shade every gold medal of Olympic winners, every national champion, every collegiate champion, everything that you can imagine, especially the olive crown, the olive branches that were put on a Greek's head as they ran naked. Listen, that nation was so idiotic. Look at them today. Do you know what they're all doing? They're committing suicide in the streets because the government's pulled the tit. Poor things. I just hope they keep doing it. Then Europe will survive because they won't have to bail them out. That's another subject. Press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling. And what is the prize? To have fulfilled our lives serving God as our Creator, our Savior, and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His kingdom, and living His righteousness. What does that have to do with this sermon? The opposite is to be a belly worshiper and have God disapproved of, disapproving of your life now. You're not even running the race of a Christian. You're sitting in an easy chair. You're lapping up the filth of this world. You're chasing soap bubbles in the yard like a two-year-old. You're a belly worshiper. And so this is the war. And the Apostle Paul is laying out that even though I'm a very mature Christian, and yes, I've accomplished some things for the Lord, I'm not quitting. I'm not retiring. I am pressing forward. I am running faster. Because I'm going to forget those things which are behind. He comes to verses 15 and through 17, in which he tells us that verse 15, As many as be perfect be thus minded. Everyone should think like Paul. And you had an example this morning, of so, this afternoon, of someone speaking to you and addressing you and telling you how much he loves the Lord Jesus Christ right now. He's not content with anything past in his life. And yes, I want to use them as an example because this passage tells me we better have some examples in this church 
or we don't look like a New Testament church. So we just had one shown to us. Let us therefore as many as be perfect, that's mature and complete as Christians, be thus minded. Let's have Paul's attitude toward life. I don't care what I've said, done, to please the Lord in the past. I'm going to do more. And as we get older, that should become even more of a pressing burden upon us because we know the years are numbered. They're fewer than they were. And we ought to give them to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God will reveal it to you. God wants you to have that kind of a life like the Apostle Paul. And he'll show you where you're lacking if you're seeking to be like him and you're trusting the Lord. He will show the things lacking in your life. We want to abide by the same rule. We want to be pressing each other forward at the same time. So verse 16 describes the unity of these godly Christians in a church, all pressing forward and helping each other and following the same rules of the gospel. Verse 17 tells us to find examples in the church so that we have Paul and those like him to follow. Verse 17, Brethren, be followers together of me. Now that's a pretty dogmatic, overbearing man, isn't it? To say, brethren, be followers together of me. Sherry took offense last night as we were going through this chapter together. She took offense at what people say of anyone that talks like that today, of accusing them of being arrogant. The Apostle Paul wasn't arrogant. He just knew that God had blessed him and he'd been faithful. He knew that he had labored more abundantly than they all. And so he said, brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. Meaning that there should be in the church at Philippi people that are living like Paul and so they can have those people plus Paul as the examples to pattern their lives after. Because, and it mentions the word walk. To mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. It helps to have someone who's on fire for the Lord opening their mouth in front of us so that we can hear the things that their mind's thinking about, the things that their heart is generating, because it provokes us to be thinking about those kind of things. And to see them giving their time to invest in the young people or to invest in anything else in the church, it encourages us to do the same. That's what the verse means. Now, those that were like the Apostle Paul, their lifestyle is described in verses 20 and 21. For our conversation, and that word means lifestyle, for our lifestyle is in heaven. Our manner of life is in heaven. The things we care about are in heaven. Now, remember, this comes after the parentheses. I'm jumping over the parentheses because in English, that's what you're supposed to do. An open parentheses means jump. A closed parenthesis means land. And so we jumped at the end of verse 17. We're landing at the beginning of verse 20 because those two verses we're going back to in a minute. But right now we're talking about Paul and those that lived their lives like him. What did they do? What was their walk? Remember, the last part of verse 17 says, them which walk, their lifestyle. Here it's the word conversation in verse 20. Notice, it's in heaven. They're more concerned about heaven than they are earth. They are looking for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not looking for a promotion. They're not looking for a new wonder, nutritional supplement to help their health. They're looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the greatest answer to every dilemma and problem you'll ever have in your life. You have financial problems? Then look for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to deliver you from all of them, including the bill collector. You're looking for better health? He's going to glorify your body. You'll never be sick again. What, what do you want to lay on me? Looking for the Lord Jesus Christ is going to deliver you from all of them. Right. I, I appreciate one person that said, I do know the, the perfect cure for cancer. And that's the coming of the Lord. Amen. You say, well, what if it's cancer that's already taken you? His coming is still the perfect cure for cancer. Right. Even if cancer has put your body in the cemetery. Well, thank you, Lord. Look at these people like Paul. Their conversation is in heaven. When The word conversation doesn't mean talk, but talking is part of your lifestyle. So you're going to be talking about heavenly things. You're going to be looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to know that He's going to change our vile body. So you don't get discouraged about your sinning. Though you confess everyone, you don't let yourself get defeated by the devil's fiery darts because you know 
that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to change your vile body. You don't get worried about your health because you know that Jesus is going to change your vile body. That it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. This is what godly people live like. From verse 8 to verse 21, it is a high spiritual standard. The the bar is set high because it's the Apostle Paul setting it and he's actually saying what I've accomplished so far isn't quite that high. I want to be that high when in fact he had been living faithfully his whole time since the Lord had converted him in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's come back to verses 18 and 19. They're what's important right now. But the Apostle, working off the word walk in verse 17 where Paul wrote that there were church members in Philippi of Macedonia of the Greek nation that walked like him. So he's working off the word walk. There are godly men and women in the church at Philippi that live like me. For many walk. Now he's got a different kind of an example. There's an example that's like the Apostle Paul, and there's an example called belly worshipers. For many walk. Many. Isn't that a terrible shame? And it's their walk. We don't care about their talk. We don't care what they say. We don't care when they open their mouths. It just gives them away that they're belly worshipers because they never mention the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They never mention the Word of God. They never mention their desire for heaven. They never mention their hungering and thirsting after righteousness. All they can talk about is their stupid job or their health or politics, or some other worthless subject in comparison to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How many verses in the Bible can you find Paul whining about his health? How many times in the Bible can you find Paul whining that he had to work too many hours making tents? Okay, good. Thank you for answering my question. For many walk, of whom I have told you often... This is a common theme in Scripture of these kind of carnal Christians or reprobates that aren't even Christians in any sense. Paul had told them often, and now tell you even weeping. Can you imagine the apostle dictating this epistle and tears are streaming down his cheeks as he realizes that that church in Philippi that got started when he and Luke went out to the riverside and Lydia was converted, they went and stayed in her house They were put in prison. The jailer and his family was converted. The church was formed. It was a great church of the New Testament. But he said of that church, and tears streaming down his cheeks, as he dictates this epistle, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Can a person sit in this church and sing, Oh, how I love Jesus, and be an enemy of the cross of Christ? Can a person be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and take the Lord's Supper with us by which we remember His death till He comes and be an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ? An enemy of the cross of Christ? Absolutely. How do you do it? You mind earthly things. How can minding earthly things be so bad that it makes you an enemy of the cross of Christ? Because Jesus died on the cross to free you from this world and the things of this world. And when you go show an interest in them, you become an enemy of His cross and the reason He died. He died to save you from this hellhole. This hellhole sets up everything as being more important than the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This world sets up education and parents will structure their children's lives all 168 hours a week to help them get some ridiculous education at an institution of lower learning and forget the real institution of higher learning called the Church of Jesus Christ. They'll make them study and turn the pages of books without making them study the only book that counts. And it's the Word of God. And so you become an enemy of the cross of Christ. Jesus died to save us from this world. Jesus died to save us from the sins that we have sinned using the things of this world. 
And so when we start to love those things or mind those things or talk about them, we become enemies of the cross of Christ. It doesn't matter that you take communion. And I'm not talking about Mormons or Roman Catholics. I'm talking about members of this church. I'm talking about anyone hearing my voice. I don't care what church you go to. I don't care how you sing. I don't care how you memorize Bible verses. I want to know if you mind earthly things. I want to know if your mind is constantly twirling about the stupidity of your hobbies and your job and your education and your family and your house and your manicured lawn and your vehicles and all that junk. And you want to go to the gym because you worry about your body. Listen, I'm going to be Mr. Olympia in just a few years. Because you're going to drop this worthless, weak carcass into the ground. Right. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells me it's going to come up in power. Exactly. And if you want to meet me in the gym after it comes up in power, I would welcome the invitation. Because when it comes up in power in 1 Corinthians 15, as Brother Charlie has illustrated by his tomato seeds, I'm not going to be benching 300 pounds in the gym. I'm going to be benching 3 million kilotons. Calculated. All of it comes back to are we belly worshipers or not? Everything gets people so distracted. But Jesus died to save us from all that and get our eyes off of the horizontal view and up to heaven. Bodily exercise profiteth little. We got to have a house to live in. You've got to have a car to get from A to B. But you know what? If you would look at everything just like that, Bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. Right. And you would keep everything in its proper place. You're not a belly worshiper. It's those that get those things out of line so that we never hear about godliness from them. We never see any real godliness. Godliness is not coming and sitting in these pews. Godliness is not bringing food to the fellowship hall. Godliness is not cleaning up the food in the fellowship hall by itself. It's when it's being done for one purpose only, and it's not being paid, and it's not being praised. It's for the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And everything we do should be for that end. Look at these two verses, this one sentence, this parenthetical narrative of information to us that while the apostle is describing his life and other mature Christians in the church at Philippi, and how the rest of the church ought to be following him and those mature Christians, there's this kind of member whose end is destruction. They will be destroyed. I ask you, when Lot was sitting in the mouth of a cave, looking at the smoke coming up from the ruins of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities of the plain, with his two daughters busy in the background carrying his children, was he destroyed? I ask you what the word is, the verb is, used in the Bible for those that didn't believe when they came to the Jordan River after meeting, after leaving Egypt. He destroyed them for 40 years. It's called damnation in 1 Corinthians 11. When some were weak and some were sickly and some were early in the church cemetery. And then, of course, there's reprobates in this description whose end is destruction in the lake of fire. Whose God is their belly. This is where belly worshiping comes from. Their God is their belly. Their belly being a figure of speech for their bodily desires their personal preferences, their own opinions, and their own ambition. It wraps up the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, all wrapped up in a little expression, whose God is their belly. Church members at Philippi. Paul wasn't weeping about the non-elect reprobates in Egypt. He was worried about the members in Philippi. There was great members. The other members should follow the great members. And then there were these kind. And there's two kinds of lifestyles in the church of Jesus Christ. There's the lifestyles that look like Paul, and there's the lifestyles that are belly worshipers. And that's why it's called a walk in verse 17, and another kind of a walk in verse 18, whose God is their belly. The Bible tells us that covetousness 
is idolatry. How can covetousness be idolatry? I want that house. I've got to have that house. It's got this and it's got that. Oh, so what? That little piece of junk? It, I just can't wait for people that are looking at houses to buy a house. Because then they, then they all of a sudden agree with me. As soon as you buy a house, it looks so different. As soon as you buy a car, it looks so different. As soon as you drive that thing home and you realize, oh, this doesn't work the way I thought it did. It doesn't work the way the salesman told me it would, and so on and so forth. Because they've made their belly their God. And here's what the Bible says twice. It says it in Ephesians, it says it in Colossians, that covetousness is idolatry. How can covetousness be idolatry? Whenever anything in this world, a thing of the world, becomes important enough to even encroach upon God, then it's become a competitor to God, so it is a God. And so all of a sudden you're guilty of idolatry because you're worshiping something that competes with God. Because it's crowding him out of your life. It's amazing. You know, you want to buy a house. Do you know how many hours you can spend in a multi-list? When was the last time you spent that many hours in a week in the Bible? You want to buy yourself a new home stereo system. So I'm going to do some research. Why don't you do some research on righteousness? Do you know how many hours you can spend in a week researching the best home stereo system for the money? How about researching the best way to live your life in all parts to please God? So all of a sudden, these little things are becoming, they just keep getting higher and higher, and the Lord gets lower and lower, and all of a sudden, they're gods, and we're guilty of idolatry. Whose God is their belly? We're all capable of it in about five minutes. It's a constant warfare that we're in whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame. They glory. You should see the excitement on their faces. Our faces. doesn't matter. Your face is what I'm talking about. Your face. It gets a glow. You get so excited. You can talk rapidly. You are so worked up about something whose glory is in their shame. To get worked up about a stupid house, a stupid car, a stupid job, Stupid set of clothes. Kids, you're excited about your family. Well, I can't wait till they're all older and the son comes home with an earring and a tongue ring and see how excited you are. Because all those things, you're letting them rise, 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 and God's coming down, 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 and your glorying is in your shame, which you ought to be ashamed of. You ought to be ashamed of getting excited about the things of this world in comparison to the things of heaven. Right. It is a shame when we talk about the things of this world and not the things of heaven. It's a shame. And you know what? When we're belly worshipers, we glory in it. We're just glorying in these things. The the, the face is glowing. The the words are just flowing. You're bouncing around. Oh, oh, I'm going to get this. I'm going to do this. I've got this. This has happened to me. Whose glory is in their shame. Abraham, Job, David, and other men were very, very rich. They were richer than you will ever even imagine being rich. Yet, they never gloried in it. It was just stuff to them. And if they could take that stuff and shovel it to the Lord, David tried to shovel out his vaults. He went to every safety deposit box he had, opened them up, dumped them out on the floor, and shoveled them to Solomon, put them in a gigantic pile, because he just wanted to get rid of it for the Lord's sake. It didn't mean anything to him. He still died a rich man, because you can't outgive the Lord. And on and on it goes. My brethren, this is the text right here that you never want to forget. They're the enemies of the cross of Christ because you like things that Jesus died to save you from. Jesus died and His death should be so much more important than these little tinsel toys and these little soap bubbles we chase. No matter what they are in your life. And who who mind earthly things. You know, we work through this long sentence and then it tells us, what is it? Who are these people? Who are these people that are enemies of the cross of Christ? Who are these people whose God is their belly? They mind earthly things. What is in your mind right now? What are you thinking about? What are you waiting for me to finish so that you can get to it? NBA playoffs? NFL draft? Work for your job tomorrow? Oh, the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you can't have a day? 
It's called the Lord's Day. And on and on we could go. Belly worshipers, whose God is their belly, who mind earthly things. Give me a few more minutes, please. I gave you 1 John 2, 15 through 17. You don't need to turn there. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's not me that's hard. It's the Bible that's hard. And the reason the Bible is hard is God is God. Right. And because God is God, that means the tense little things down here that he has told you are of a temporal nature, they rust, rot, and destroy, and thieves break in and steal them, the government taxes them. Those things shouldn't get your attention so much that you push him into a corner. He's God. Everything he's done for us, everything he is, everything he's written to us should be pre- preeminently important in our lives over anything else. I'm an excitable person. I get excited at a lot of things, but I hope I get more excited about the things of God's Word than anything else. Amen. I hope that I'll be willing to hit the silver lever on anything in my life. Lord, if I need to hit the silver lever, and I mean this, brethren, this is how we all ought to pray. If there's anything in my life that I need to hit the silver lever on, show it to me, and I'll hit the silver, silver lever. Right. <clears throat> I'm thankful for my brother-in-law at a pitiful time in my life when I had a Jaguar convertible, 12 cylinders, perfect color combination. Love that car at night under the lights. Wow. 16 speakers. I appreciate a brother-in-law that said it's got a hot future. Y'all know, isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Randy Hester, wherever you are, if you hear this, thank you very much. It's got a hot future. And it does. The Lord's going to burn it up and everything else we have, including everything. The gym, our bodies are going to corrupt. They're corrupting so fast now. And so we've got to make the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ the most important thing. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is not me being strict. That's the Lord being strict because he deserves every bit of... That's why he says, thou shalt love the Lord with how much of your heart, mind, soul, and strength? All of it. How much is left over? None. So everything else is just necessary usage of it in this world. Use the world without abusing it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and despise the other. If you hold this world, do you know what you will end up despising? If you get excited about the things of this world, you will despise the worship in this house. When you despise the worship in this house, it is because you are too enamored with the world. If you want a very easy way to know whether you are a belly worshiper or not, how much do you love going to church and sitting through our singing, our praying, and the preaching? That is how you can tell. Because that is a spiritual exercise and a spiritual activity that God has required of us. And if you don't like it, it is because that conflict is coming into reality in your life. That you are holding to something and it's causing you to despise something else. You are holding to the things of this world, and this world hates spiritual religion. So you end up despising these worship services as being no good. It's no good to you because you're in the flesh. That's a belly worshiper. Measure yourself. If you love to be in the house of the Lord, and if you love to sing His praise, and you love to hear the Word of God open, and show me something, Pastor. Show me something from God's Word to convict me. Show me something from God's Word that I'm doing wrong so that I can do better. That shows that you're not a belly worshiper. Because God's your God, and you're worshiping Him, and you want Him to correct your life. Look at James 4.4. These are verses that everybody knows. But I want to tie them all together as verses about belly worship. James chapter 4. We were at James 1 a couple of weeks ago about the mirror of God's Word. We're at James 4 today, verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? That strong terminology of James writing to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. He is writing to all nations of the Roman Empire and to the Jews that were in those nations of the Roman Empire, he didn't have intimate knowledge of each of them. He is not saying that all of those churches and all of those places had literal, physical, sexual adulterers and adulteresses. 
he's using the word adulterer and adulteress as somebody who is a friend of the world. Because the world is the enemy of God. And if you're being a friend with his enemy, then you're committing adultery against him. You're guilty of whoredom against him. That's why the Old Testament is filled with, they went a-whoring after other gods. But do you know what? We aren't that good to go whoring after other gods. We go whoring after junk. We go whoring after the gym. We go whoring after a house. We go whoring after a job. And when anything becomes of this world becomes a competitor to the Lord Jesus Christ or to God, we're guilty of adultery. It's very powerful language to get the attention of men of what we're doing against the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Don't you know that? God hates this world. Jesus died to save us from this world so that we can be pulled out of this world when He burns this world and melts every element of it with fervent heat. This is the word of the Lord to us. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. There is not this neutral state between being being a friend of the world and a friend of God. Abraham was called a friend of God. Lot was a friend of the world. Do you know the difference between their lives? They wanted to live in a good subdivision. So he pitched his tent towards Sodom. He lifted up his eyes. He went and he looked. Oh, this looks so nice. This looks so pretty, is what Lot said. Lot had no regard for the God of heaven. He lifted up his eyes and he saw that the plains of Jordan were well watered where his flocks and herds would prosper and he could become successful and have a very nice living and put his kids in good schools. That's what he saw. And so he pitched his tent towards Sodom. He was a friend of the world. And the next time we find him, where is he living? Inside the city walls of Sodom. Three of his daughters are married to whom? The men of Sodom. His wife. How much character does she have left following a husband like that? None. His two daughters. How much character do they have left following a father like that? None. Where is Abraham? Taking the leftovers. I've had great pleasure thinking about the difference between Abraham and Lot. Lot lifted up his eyes and looked and saw such good things, and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life drove him down to the Jordan River, into the city of Sodom, on the city council. He gave his daughters away to three of the families of that city. He ended up with absolutely every asset ripped away from him and burned up with fire and brimstone from heaven. His wife he had ruined, so she turned around and became a pillar of salt. His two daughters were so depraved from a wicked city that they got their father drunk and conceived children by him. Genesis 19. And he's sitting in a cave wondering, what happened to my life? I'll tell you what happened to his life. He lifted up his eyes and looked. We need to lift up the eyes of faith and say, the Lord's coming. It doesn't matter where we live. It doesn't matter what we eat. Let's just serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a whole different approach to life. It was described to us in detail in Philippians 3. Right now I'm talking about being a friend of the world as the enemy of God. Lot became God's enemy. You say, but he saved him. <laughs> yes, he did. He, he had his angels drag him out of that city and leave him in the cave. You call that a salvation? Where'd the Ammonites and the Moabites come from? His seed through his two daughters. Where was Abraham? He took the leftovers. He said, okay, nephew, go ahead and take the good property. I'll I'll go over here. My sheep are all going to die off here quickly. He didn't say anything like that. That's what Lot would be thinking. I'll go over here. There's no water. I don't know what I'm going to do with my flocks and herds. They're so huge. What does the Bible say about Abraham when he died? How poor was he? Was he sitting in a cave? Did he have the beginnings of a big family? Was it all legitimate? Yeah. Wonderful. A very rich man. The friend of God. The father of the faithful. When when, when Christians and Bible believers and the worshipers of God have read the Bible for the last 4,000 years, 3,500 to be exact, with Moses writing the first five books of the Bible, was there a difference between Abraham and Lot known to all men? 
if we didn't have Jude 1 and 2 Peter 2, would we know that Lot's in heaven? No. Would we know Abraham's there? Yes. That's the difference between a friend of God and a friend of the world. Did Lot offer sacrifice to a false god? No. Did he offer his children a sacrifice to Molech? No. Did he go worship in the temple of Zeus? No, not we know of. What did he do? He lifted up his eyes, he saw the things of this world, and he got excited about them. And they influenced his life so that he moved into town and started doing things that the neighbors do so that his kids wouldn't feel left out. That's all he did. Then it was over. He went down the tubes. God's people haven't lived like that. They live differently from the world. We separate ourselves from the world. We don't touch the unclean thing. We get away from them. Evil communications corrupt good manners, and they certainly corrupted the manners of two daughters and a father, didn't they? How could that father get drunk two nights in a row? Unbelievable. The adulterers and adulteresses, that is spiritual adultery, by becoming friends with God's enemy, and we flirt with God's enemy. Don't even flirt with it. I preached playing with sin 12 years ago. Don't even play with it. Lord, help us. Look at 2 Timothy 4.10. You want to see a New Testament version of Lot? It's in the Bible. I just want to show it to you. 2 Timothy 4.10. 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. So what is Demas? A belly worshiper. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Here is a man, Demas, a gifted man, an instructed man. Colossians chapter 4 refers to him as one of Paul's helpers, a minister. He would not heed the warnings against the world. How could this possibly happen? How could a man gifted and brought up with the Apostle Paul and serving the Lord with the Apostle Paul ever forsake the Apostle in his darkest hour in the city of Rome for this present world? Are you? Why is it called the present world? Because it's, it's only here for now and it's about to go away. It's about to be burned up and there's going to be an eternal world. The world that is to come is going to last forever. How could he desert Paul? It's may, doesn't that, doesn't that work, work on you? How could he desert Paul? How? He lifted up his eyes and looked. He thought about his lust. I don't like being here in Rome with Paul. All these beautiful women around. Oh, these senators sure have some babes. Look at these foxes on the billboards everywhere. Every time I turn the television on, look at these models. I got to follow Paul around from one prison to another, being beaten, preaching the gospel, these boring old hags. Yeah, I'm going to go get myself a hot one. I know what I said. Where do you think he ended up? This past week, I've been meditating on what cave was Demas in. You see, well, the Bible doesn't tell us. That's the whole point. What cave was Demas in? Because I want to know what cave you're going to be in. And maybe if you can figure out what cave Demas was in, it might help you come to the conclusion of what cave you're going to be in. Or what cave I'll be in if I love this present world and let it compete with serving God. Sin is a deceiver. It can entice you farther and farther into its clutches for destruction. Demas forsook Paul. Lot ruined his entire family and ended up ruined in every sense possible. It's so hard to imagine a Demas watching Paul every day, but then we should be confirmed that how hard was it for Lot to watch Abraham every day? Do you know that Lot would know that when Abraham went and built an altar and God came down and talked to him? Because Abraham walked with God. Lot would know about those things. Lot knew that in Genesis chapter 14, when he was taken captive by four Confederate kings from the Mesopotamia Valley, and his uncle came with 318 trained servants and delivered him, that God is great and God is good. Right. He knew that. But it didn't stick because he was too fascinated by lifting up his eyes and looking at the things of this world. Look at 1 Peter 2.11. 1 Peter 2.11. 
I know that you've been saddled with one of the sorriest speakers possible, but I want to say to you right now, if you can't wait for me to finish so that you can go home and start looking at your little toys and soap bubbles that are so important to you, you are a belly worshiper, and you will be in a cave just like Lot. There is no way. It doesn't matter if you join hand in hand and confederate yourself with the strongest, uh, strongest friends possible. You will not keep yourself from that cave because God is going to put you in it whose end is destruction. If you, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth that shall he also reap. If you sow the flesh, you're going to reap of the flesh corruption. 1 Peter 2.11. Here's the war. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, and I'm beseeching you, though I'm so harsh in doing it. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. It's the things of this world that try to steal us away from loving God like we should, who has loved us. That's why they're dearly beloved. Because God loved these saints so much, He sent His Son to die for them. So the apostle besought them that they would remember that they were strangers and pilgrims and that they would abstain There are some things we should not even use moderation with. We should just get rid of, which war against the soul. Why were they called strangers? Because they didn't belong here. This is not our home. Why are they called pilgrims? Because they're on a journey. And where are they going? To heaven. We are strangers and pilgrims here. This is not our resting place. So we don't put our confidence and our love and our trust in the things here. We're strangers here. We're not part of their system. And we're pilgrims because we're going somewhere. They're not. They're dying. We're going to heaven. Strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lust. Those, what is a lust? A lust is a desire or a craving for something that God has out there in the world or that the sin, sinners have put out there in the world. It's our desires for things, stuff, activities that God has disapproved of. They war against the soul. You come into church, you hear the Word of God, you sing, your heart is lifted up by singing at Calvary, all four verses of it. I look for you. You love that song? And then you go out of here and all of a sudden, you are being pulled in 40 different directions. And the world is coming after you with all their things. And we've got to put them down and abstain from those fleshly lusts. Let's use the world. Let's just use it. You know, if you're going to the gym, your motive there should not be the pride of life. I want everybody to see my guns. Your motive should not be anything else. It shouldn't be the lust of the eyes by seeing some guy in there that's been using steroids, human growth hormone, and other techniques for the last 10 years to get his guns. It shouldn't be any of that. It should be, I'm in here to get myself fit and in condition so I can serve the Lord better. Put the Lord first. You can put the Lord first in everything. You say, well, what about going to bed at night with with my wife? You can do that as unto the Lord as well. This is a daughter of the high king of heaven. And I'm going to give her the night of her life so that her father is going to hear about it when she goes to prayer tomorrow morning and he's going to be happy with me. You say, you're kidding me. No, not at all. Not at all. You want God to smile smile at your work on Monday? You take care of his daughter on Sunday night. Ladies, be ready. First Peter 2.11, it's such a, I'll close, there's so many more. Do you know this one? Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does glory mean? It means to get excited and thrilled about something. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then it says this, by whom the world is crucified unto me. Jesus dying and realizing the purpose of his death puts the world to death for me. I don't give a rip about anything they've got. And I am crucified into the world. I'm put to death so that I don't have the same lusts and desires that I used to have toward the world. That all, where does all that come from? God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what if you gloried in your job and the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you be crucified to the world and the world to you? No. There's only one way to be saved from belly worship. And that is to glory in the Lord Jesus Christ only. God forbid that I should glory 
save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. God forbid that I would get excited and thrilled about anything in comparison to my excitement and thrill of the Lord Jesus Christ dying for me. Colossians chapter 3. There is an internet, and it's not for international use. It's for your use, because there'll be more points, many more points out there in the next 24 hours, the Lord willing. But I want to close with this one. I love this one. I love the first 17 verses of Colossians chapter 3. But I'm only going to give you the first four. And I've preached them to you before. Nothing that I've preached today is new. That's the problem. Do you know what? It's not that we need to hear something new. It's that we need to do the things that we've heard before. And do them more zealously and more carefully. And so hopefully the words, whose God is their belly, will haunt you. And he lifted up his eyes and looked. And that's what caused Lot his problem. And it caused David his problem. And it caused Ahab his problem. What did David lift up his eyes and see? Bathsheba taking a shower. What did Ahab lift up his eyes and see? Naboth's vineyard. Did it mess him up because he lifted up his eyes? And even look, who cares about vineyards? As long as there was a glass of wine every night at supper at Ahab's place, he shouldn't have given a thought to vineyards. But he wanted that vineyard. And it destroyed him. And brought God's judgment whose end is destruction. You say, well, David survived. What a survival he had. What a mess. I thought we were talking about Shimei earlier today. Do you know why a Benjamite came out of the woods and cursed him and threw dirt clods at him as he left Jerusalem and told the whole population what he was guilty of? You say that's survival? He did survive because he repented. And it was a deep repentance if you'll go read Psalm 51. Colossians 3. Do you all, can you all explain this text? Could you sit down with someone and explain these four verses to them? What does it mean when it opens up with the words, if ye then be risen with Christ? Are you risen from the dead yet? What does it mean when it says, if ye then be risen with Christ? Baptized. Can we prove it? Does 2.11 look like good proof? In the previous context, 2.11. No, I don't want 2.11. I want 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. Notice that. If we just read what comes before, we can figure out what our verse is talking about. Right. It's that easy. If ye then. If ye then means he's already explained it. So we just got to go back and find out that we're buried with him in baptism. So if we're buried, you only, we only bury something that's dead. So if we were buried with him in baptism, then something must have died that we put in the ground and buried because we wanted to get rid of it and we're risen with him through baptism. So we come to this first verse, if ye then be risen with Christ. When you came up out of the water, you were saying that you wanted to live a resurrected life like the Lord Jesus Christ was living at the right hand of God. So the apostle argues from that, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Period. Right. If you've been baptized and you met your baptism, you met it, you meant it, you understood it, and you did it for the purpose that God gave baptism, you were identifying yourself with Jesus Christ because He was buried like you're buried in water to put away your sins. He rose up out of the water, victorious over death, and he's then ascended into heaven and sat down at God's right hand. Well, if you're identifying yourself with Jesus Christ, you're baptized because you're saying, I'm putting my sins away. I'm not going to live for those things that Jesus died to pay for. And you come up out of the water. I am risen from that former lifestyle to live a new life. But, the, but Paul is arguing you just want to keep right on thinking that your thoughts should go all the way up into heaven because that's where Jesus went after his resurrection. 
If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. That is not a belly worshiper. That is a God worshiper. That is a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ who's living out his baptism. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. It is a choice what you love. That's why the Bible can say, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. That is why the Bible can say, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. That's why the Bible can say, Set your affection on things above. You can choose to make the things of heaven, the things of Christ, the righteousness of God, the most important things in your life. And it's a choice you're all going to make right now. And the consequences of this choice will come to bear next year, next month, next decade, when we find you in the mouth of a cave. Or when the Lord finds you there. Honestly, this is how it's done every day. If we're risen with Christ in baptism, then let's look like we're resurrected in the lives that we live by seeking those things which are in heaven. Let's set our affection, our love, our delight, our joy, our work, the purpose for our living on things above, not on things on the earth. Where have you laid up treasures this week? Were those treasures laid up in pursuing jobs? Houses? Cars? Clothes? Anything? Or have you laid up treasures in heaven by serving the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 3, For ye are dead. Now, how could the apostle be writing dead people? How did they give them the epistle? Did they exhume them from the grave? For ye are dead. Because baptism, we said we were dead. I am dead to the world. I am dead to that old lifestyle. I am dead to those things. I am dead to those sins. For ye are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. They can't see what's going on between us and the Lord. The world looks at us and they don't see any difference from the outside. I mean, we wear the same kind of clothes and we eat three meals a day or more. And we live in a house and do those. We drive cars and stuff like that. We don't drive horse and buggies like the Amish. We look like them. But our life is hid. They don't know where our real life is. Their life is in their house. They think that 2,000 square feet of 2 by 4s is cool. Give me a match in five minutes. And there's no fire department on earth that will get there in time. It's nothing. And the Lord's not going to need a match, and He's not going to need five minutes. Right. And it's going to melt. It's going to be hot. But that's their life. Their life is wrapped up in that shiny car that pulls into that garage. And out comes the sun that's going to T-ball. Oh, yes, they're going to sit there and network on their iPhones while their son's batting a ball off a stick, a post in the ground. Their whole life is wrapped up in those things. And there we are living next to them. The children might be in T-ball. The car might shine. And we might have 2,000 square feet of two-by-fours. But our life is hid with Christ in God. It's totally different. We have a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is coming to burn up this whole stinking place. And we don't care if we lost our house, car, and child. We are going to serve the God of heaven. We are going to say with Job, the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we're going to worship. It's such a difference. Our life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, you say, well, that's such a terrible life. Can you give me one more minute? That's such a terrible life. If I don't have anything down here of shiny stuff to put my affection on, do I get anything for being a Christian? When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Is, is that worth it? Don't, I'm about to start singing. It shall be, it will be worth it all when we see Christ. That's just flooding my mind right now. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And all this stuff will then be seen for what it's always been. Worthless, nothing, vanity, and vexation of spirit. And the poor belly worshiper has worshipped a God in vain when you could be worshipping the God of heaven. And if you worship him right, 
And in the nation and generation that we live in, if you worship Him right, he can, he can bless you in your heart. He will bless you in the future. But He can also give you the things of this world that they seek after, and it will be far more satisfying than they've ever been satisfied with them. It's the best of all worlds. And how do we do it? We live a resurrected life. We hate being a belly worshiper. We love God. We love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. We don't mind earthly things. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.